Thanks very much. I'm really glad to be here because we are in the north. It's cold and I love this. Uh, now, uh, about uh, you, Ted, you will get it back now. You know, uh, speaking about good books on Hegel, since many of you are probably his students here, uh, uh, nonetheless, I must report on something that I noticed how almost all the really great books on Hegel in the last decades are written by women. You know, for example, it began 30, 40 years ago, a French lady, Beatrice Longanes, Hegel and the Critic of Metaphysics, something like that. Then it was, uh, it was uh, Gillian Rose, not Jacqueline Rose, Hegel contra sociology, then it was Catherine Malabou, then it was Rebecca Comey, and so on. So at least measured by all politically correct standards, women are not underrepresented here. But there is now, you told me, it physically already exists, although it's not yet in the bookstores. Uh, your own Emancipation After Hegel, a new book, and uh, at the end, if there will be time, to make my final point, I will quote from it, but this doesn't change the fact that you are a complete idiot. It's just, <laughs> we in Slovene, we have uh, one of these stupidities called national proverbs, no? Uh, even a blind hen can find the best grain, you know, like, the translation would be like, even a complete idiot can be lucky. So the quote fits that category. <laughs> No, seriously, read the book, because it's very clearly written and so on. So, before I begin, I will begin immediately, I was duped, tricked by Todd, because uh, he uh, told me, you can speak in a complex way as much as you want, this is a group uh, educated in theory. It will not be quite like that, but it will be some parts on Hegel relatively complex. So, again, no dirty jokes. Uh, I, 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 uh, I will keep the jokes for this Friday. <laughs> no dirty jokes, and, but at the same time, it will be very naive. I am really intrigued by this problem problem of the so-called popular term coined by Elon Musk, uh, Neuralink, or singularity, or whatever. Let's, my premise is, although I have some empirical doubts, but I'm, I'm too stupid to judge if this can happen or not, but let's say this can happen. Something like direct brain computer and uh, with, through computer with other persons direct exchange of experiences thought, what will this mean for the status of subjectivity? So, let me begin. So, as I already said, I will deal with the prospect of so-called post-humanity, opened up by a direct link between our brain and the digital machine. My premise is that one should resist here the temptation to proclaim the prospect of a wired brain an illusion, something that we are still far from and that cannot really be actualized. I think that, in spite of all simplifications and exaggerations in the public media, something is going on in this 
domain. And I, I'm not totally bluffing. My only sources are not Time Magazine, New York Times, or whatever. I'm in contact with some specialists. Uh, so I will limit myself to questioning the philosophical implications and consequences of such an event. Important as the rise of the so-called surveillance capitalism is, it is, I think, surveillance capitalism not yet the true game changer. I see a much greater potential for new forms of domination in the prospect of direct brain-machine interface. It is clear that all kinds of secret agencies are working intensely on it. The friends who are in it told me that it's incredible how much all your own Chinese, Russian secret services invest in this. Uh, what we learn is just the public face of it. The best known project in this direction is Elon Musk's Neuralink. Uh, the idea of a direct communication pathway, first between an enhanced or wire brain and an external device, and then between brains themselves. So first, when our brain is connected to digital machines, we can cause things to happen in reality just by thinking about them. My friends are telling me that at still a very modest level, this can already be done. For example, I was told that when Stephen Hawking was dying in the last month, I don't know, they only considered it, or it was already done, that in his wheelchair he no longer even had to use this famous one finger, that he was still able to move a little bit. At an elementary level, the machine was able to crack the basic commands of his brain. So he thought strongly forward, the machine moved forward, and so on. Uh, uh, so, okay, that's the first thing. But then, and uh, uh, so again, there are examples here which are already practiced. I direct my thoughts on a coffee machine, and the coffee gets made, and so on, and so on. Then, of course, a much more dangerous and interesting prospect, that of a direct connection to another brain, so that my thoughts are directly shared by another individual. For example, because everybody's first association is this one, I daydream about an intense sexual experience and another individual can directly share this experience. So, the first paradox here is that the gradual development of communication in the direction of adding, uh, the gra this gradual development went on so that additional layers of mediation were added. Spoken word, writing, telegraph, phone, internet. This development is here cut short. We don't get one medium more, we get the prospect of a direct link bypassing these additional layers. The consequence of this direct brain-to-brain -brain communication is not just greater speed, but also accuracy. When I think about something, I don't have to translate my thoughts into linguistic signs, which brutally simplify meaning. My partner 
can directly perceive what I think. A quote from Elon Musk, not because he is a genius, but precisely because he simplifies things to the utmost, bringing out the ideology that underlies this project. Say you are on a beautiful hike and you want to show your husband the view. No problem. Just think out to him to request a brain connection. When he accepts, connect your retina feed to his visual cortex. Now his vision is filled with exactly what your eyes see as if he's, he is there, end of quote. And what is more logical than to extend the idea onto the domain of sexuality? Again, Elon Musk, you could have, you could save a great sex experience in the cloud to enjoy it again later. Or if you are not too private a person, you could send it over to a friend to experience. <laughs> End of quote. Now, nonetheless, a series of questions arise here. Even again, if we neglect the technical feasibility of this project. The first one concerns the role of language in the formation of our thoughts and of our inner life in general. Elon Musk simply assumes that our thoughts are present in our mind independently of their expression in language. So that if I connect my brain directly with another's brain, the other individual will experience my thoughts directly in all their wealth and finesse, not distorted, but not distorted by the clumsiness and simplifications of language. However, what if language, in all its clumsiness and simplifications, generates the wealth, the subtle wealth of our thoughts? So, yes, language reduces the mess of our thoughts to simple words or sentences. Say, when I say to somebody, I love you, the wealth of my feelings is reduced to a simple formula pronounced thousands of times every day. However, this very condensation of the chaotic wealth creates complex meanings. It evokes the rich texture of what is left unsaid. We are here, I think, automatically victims of a fetishist illusion. The surplus of deeper meaning left unsaid is not already there and then just discovered or alluded to. It is generated by the reduction of our thoughts to simple linguistic formulas. The next question that arises is, will our individuality survive this passage into singularity? Again, a quote from Elon Musk, our concern, one concern that comes up when people hear about thought communication in particular is a potential loss of individuality. Would this make us one great hive mind with each individual's brain as just another bee? Almost across the board, the experts believe it would be the opposite. We could act as one in a collaboration when it serves us but technology has thus far enhanced human individuality." End of quote. My counterpoint. True, technology has so far enhanced our individuality because it introduced more alienation, additional layers into our exchange with others. And even 
It even alienated us from ourselves, our on-screen image, when we interact on the web, is not directly ourselves. So what happens when this distance disappears? Elon Musk's first line of defense is that the individual is not totally immersed into this collective space. It, he, the individual, or she, or it, maintains a minimal distance towards it, so that in order to allow the machine, or through it, another individual, to register or share my thoughts and feelings, I have to actively consent to it. Again, a quote. People won't be able to read your thoughts. You would have to will it. If you don't will it, it doesn't happen. Just like if you don't will your mouth to talk, it doesn't talk. End of quote. My very naive question. How does Musk know that the individual maintains this minimal distance? Remember that a wired brain works objectively. Our brain is wired linked to a machine which, uh, strictly speaking, doesn't read our thoughts, but the processes in our brain which are the neuronal correlate of our thoughts. Consequently, since we think, I'm not aware of the neuronal processes in my brain. So how should I know if I am plugged in into this uh, uh, neural link or not? It is, not, is it not much more reasonable to surmise that when I am plugged into Neuralink, I will not even be aware when my inner life is transparent to others? In short, does Neuralink not offer itself as the ideal medium of political or social control of our inner lives? And Things do progress at this level. I will now repeat that old story that uh, I often uh, repeat. Uh, uh, already in 2002, a friend who works in this domain told me that in a lab where he was working, they already succeeded in uh, wiring a rat, rat's brain to a computer so that uh, the result was this one. And I have the video, they registered, take the experiment. Uh, it's still very elementary. They somehow cracked the neuronal signals to simple gestures, like run forward, left, right, and so on. So you have there a rat freely strolling around. You press a button, a rat becomes uh, 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 like a, 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 a remote-controlled car. You can direct the rat, left, right, run this way, run that way, and as my friend kind of uh, hinted at me in an obscure way, of course, the big question that bothered them is, let's do it on a human being. And as he didn't want to talk about it, but his hint was that, of course, secretly, they are doing it and the result is pretty sad. Namely, the big question is, Let's say I am this type of controlled person. I walk around here freely, Todd, the evil guy, presses the button and he can control my strolling around. How will I experience it? Will it be, oh my God, some foreign power controls me? And the result, 
at least what my friend told me almost 20 years ago already, I don't even want to think what they know now, is no, I will not even be aware of what is happening. I will still think that I'm just freely strolling, uh, uh, freely strolling around. Most of those who reflect on Neuralink focus on the individuality of my experience. Will I lose it or not when I immerse into singularity? I think that we should also pursue the opposite option. What if I retain my individuality and I even don't know that I am controlled and steered? Next point. From the psychoanalytic standpoint, what the shift to the post-human dimension amounts to is, at its most fundamental level, the overcoming, leaving behind of the domain of sexuality in its most radical ontological dimension. Not just sexuality as a specific sphere of human existence, but the sexual as an antagonism, a bar of impossibility, constitutive of being human in our finitude. And the issue carefully avoided, carefully avoided by the partisans of, of, uh, of singularity is to what extent are many features usually identified with being human, not just sexuality, but art, creativity, consciousness, and so on, precisely dependent on the antagonism that constitutes the sexual. That's Freud's basic premise. You must be very careful here. I hope you don't train them enough. For Freud, sexuality is not the instinctual basis of being human. It's precisely the site of the most radical break. The denaturalization of a human being begins with sexuality. Sexuality in its human form means the biological rhythm is perturbed. Uh, uh, apes or, I don't want to be evil, but those famous Jordan Peterson's lobsters and so on, <laughs> they have their mating season. No? They do it when instinctually they feel the need for it and so on and so on. But look what happens with humans. First, we have this mysterious intrusion of infantile sexuality, which is biologically a nonsense. This uh, biologically, I know what's the origin, because of our belated maturity to feel in time and so on and so on, but already there, uh, sexuality enters a domain of fantasies. Uh, it's it's kind of exempted from its biological function of reproduction. And then you get all the paradoxes of human sexuality, like what happens in courtly love and at other levels of perversion, that you infinitely prolong or defer, postpone the climax, you just play with it without ever getting at the thing, or enjoying in pain or whatever, all this stuff. Uh, that's, that's uh, constitutive of human, uh, that's constitutive of human uh, sexuality. And it can be claimed that uh, that's in some sense what makes us human. Uh, 
Years ago, I remember reading a book that I didn't like on how our mind works of Steve Pinker, where he tries to explain why <coughs> we humans cannot solve this enigma of metaphysical questions, how our mind works and so on. And he said it's simple. It's the same reason that rabbits <coughs> cannot do uh, 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 cannot do uh, cannot do high mathematics and so on because in their biological adaptation and so on they don't need it our intellectual tools serve certain purposes <coughs> for example seduction labor work and so on that's what is needed for our biological reproduction. And the same goes for rabbits. So, of course, the big metaphysical questions, that's why they cannot be answered, because simply our mind, because of evolutionary reasons of adaptation, didn't develop in that direction. <coughs> With humans, a problem emerges here. Why then, as far as I know, in contrast to rabbits, we are precisely obsessed by impossible problems? these problems which in principle cannot be solved, and not only this, why? You can even say, you can even go a step further, why, uh, uh, why uh, all useful knowledge usually comes as an offspring, an, in, an, an, an unintended result of solving, of dealing with metaphysical questions, and so on and so on. Uh, Perhaps the saddest aspect of this vision of Neuralink is the cynical, opportunistic calculus that sustains it. The idea is we humans will give birth to a higher form of, of intelligence. So, if which this higher form, if we left it to itself to deploy its powers, will reduce us to gorillas in a zoo. So, the logic is we are doomed to develop a monster that will follow us, so the only solution is join the winner. Let's immerse ourselves into this monster. Of course, from the perspective of so-called partisans of singularity, uh, they try to put, as it were, a positive spin on it. Their idea is that this immersion into new collective mind of singularity Finally, here I come to your topic of Hegel and so on, finally realizes the program of German idealism, the full reconciliation unity of mind and matter. If you permit me a quote from a guy who formulated a good resume of this, Michael Zimmermann, a longer quote, only through humankind can divine self-consciousness occur. After positing an other to itself in the form of nature, which is Geist, spirit, extended in space, Geist subsequently manifests itself as conscious humankind, which then sets about to know and thus to assimilate otherness constituted by extended nature. Material things are petrified intelligence, extended in space, whereas consciousness is liquefied intelligence unfolding through temporal history. 
Estranged from the idea, nature is only the corpse of the understanding. Nature is, however, only implicitly the idea. And Schelling, the German idealist philosopher to whom he refers, therefore called her a petrified intelligence, others even a frozen intelligence. But God does not remain petrified and dead. The very stones cry out and trace themselves to spirit. End of quote. So the Hegelian, or more broadly, German idealist uh, references are here clearly spelled out, as well as the gap that separates the idea of singularity from the space of German idealism. Inert nature, natural reality, gets gradually spiritualized through the process of actualizing its spiritual potentials. The first peak of this process is human intelligence in which spirit becomes aware of itself, returns to itself, back from nature. But at this stage, spirit remains, is still opposed to reality. It becomes aware of itself as individual consciousness, opposed to material reality. In order to fully actualize itself, spirit has to overcome this opposition and become aware of itself as the spiritual dimension, the spiritual inner life of entire material reality. At this level, my self-consciousness overlaps with the self-consciousness of entire reality, or in theological terms, my awareness of God is simultaneously the self-awareness of God himself. That's the idea, that, you know, if we are immersed into the collective space of so-called singularity, this transhuman intelligence, then it's no longer us as subject opposed to reality. This collective awareness is self-awareness of material reality itself. It's a total reconciliation between matter and spirit. But the difference that separates German idealism from the theories of singularity is that for German idealists, this full unity of spirit and reality is already achieved in the philosophical speculation, or in a more mystical version, in theosophical experience. For theorists of singularity, on the contrary, we, finite humans, cannot actualize the full unity of spirit and reality. Our separate individual awareness is a too strong obstacle. Reconciliation of reality with spirit is achieved only when we renounce our separated individuality and become one with the spirit which permits reality itself. Now, what we get here is another third version of Hegel came too early. But you know, all big or influential interpretations of Hegel shared this goal of Hegel, yes, reconciliation between subject and object, spirit and reality, but the idea is Hegel came too early. For example, already for so-called Hegelian Marxism, in an exemplary way, the masterpiece of young George Lukacs, uh, the history and class consciousness, only proletarian revolution with reconciliation between subject, subject and object, individual collectivity, can really do what Hegel aimed at 
aimed at with his notion of reconciliation. Then, for Fukuyama, in a ne more narrow political, <coughs> at a more narrow political level, it's only with liberal democracy, with today's developed Western capitalism, that we are there, that we got at the final best imaginable form of social order. And I think that partisans of singularity simply made the next step here. No story only with the science of a shared uh, brain experience and so on will the true uh, reconciliation occur. So the prospect of neuralink is thus the prospect of actual empirical overcoming of our finite, finite sexual being. Entering the dimension of singularity becomes a simple positive fact, not a matter of sublime inner experience. And we should clearly identify here the theological dimension, insofar as fall in the biblical sense, designates the wound of separation, the constitutive loss that defines us as humans, Proponents of Neuralink want to heal the wound literally. They claim, and it's even a nice, crazy, radical thought, they claim, no, no, we are not playing these speculative games in some higher knowledge or mystical experience. You can overcome your finitude. No, science can do it. We can literally, empirically develop a collective brain where it happens. This version of the healing of the wound, the wound of the fall, is totally incompatible, I think, with Hegel's interpretation of the fall. Hegel begins with St. Paul. God gave law to men in order to make them conscious of their sin, even to make them sin all the more, and thus to make them aware of their need for salvation, which can occur only through divine grace. However, does this reading not involve a strange, perverse notion of God? The only way to avoid such a perverse reading, and intelligent theologists are aware of it, the reading is that in order to redeem us, God first pushed us down, as it were. I claim this is an obscene misreading of the Bible. But if you want to get rid of this paradox, then you have to accept a radical consequence or implication. Namely, you have to assert the absolute identity of the two gestures. God does not first push us into sin, in, in, then in order to create the need for salvation, and then offers, he offers himself as the redeemer from the trouble into which he got us in the first place. It is not that the fall is followed by redemption. The fall is identical to redemption. It is, in some sense, in itself already redemption. That is to say, think a little bit. What is redemption? The explosion of freedom, the breaking out of the natural enchainment. And this, precisely, it was, is what happens in the fall. One should bear in mind here, the central tension of the Christian notion of the fall. The fall 
regression to the natural state, enslavement to passions, is strictly identical with the dimension from which we fall. It is as if the very movement of the fall creates, opens up what is lost in it. And this brings me to Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, of the New Testament. Does the story of the fall not say exactly the same thing? The serpent promises Adam and Eve that by eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge, they will become like God. And as Hegel cynically notices, the serpent didn't lie. After he sees them, after they ate from the tree of knowledge, God, God, uh, God says, Behold, Adam has become like one of us. Okay, I will now drop the mystery of one of us. You, you know, you have, especially in the Old Testament, always this plural existence of God. This is a big problem. In what precise sense is Judaism, uh, 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 is Judaism monotheistic? So then Hegel rejects the claim that what God says is meant with irony. Now I quote Hegel, the crucial passage, from his uh, lectures on the philosophy of religion. Cognition is the principle of spirituality, and this is also the principle by which the injury of the separation is healed. It is in this principle of cognition that the principle of divinity is also posited. End of quote. So subjective knowledge is not just the possibility to choose evil or good. Another quote from Hegel. It is the consideration or the cognition that makes people evil. So that consideration and cognition themselves are what is evil. And therefore such cognition is what ought not to exist because it is the source of evil. End of quote. This is how one should understand Hegel's dictum from his phenology of spirit that evil is the gaze itself which perceives evil everywhere. The gaze which sees evil excludes itself from the social whole it criticizes and this exclusion is the formal characteristic of evil. And Hegel's point is that the good emerges as a possibility and duty only through this primordial choice of evil. We experience the good when, after choosing evil, we become aware of the utter inadequacy of our <coughs> situation. Now, I think here, but if there are some Hegel specialists here, they will know it better than me, uh, that uh, Hegel, as is often the case with him, is at a certain crucial point afraid to go to the end here. Because Hegel always emphasizes that, that when you have the fall, division, separation, it's never simply the good part, spirit, uh, 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 and then the bad part. The true evil is the good part itself, which caused the separation. But it's implicitly in Hegel's this much more radical idea that in the separation of God from man, to put it very brutally, you find some hints in Hegel, the true evil is God himself. That's why, as Hegel emphasizes, uh, what happens 
on the cross is dead. God admits that his separation from man is also the separation of God from itself. You know, the Christian formula is not we finite mortal humans are separated from God, so if you work hard uh, purifying yourself, you somehow rejoin God. No, Christianity has a totally different formula of reconciliation. Reconciliation means that you experience how your separation from God is at the same time the separation of God from himself. That's what happens on the cross, of course, with the famous Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, Father, why have you abandoned me? You have there a moment of separation transposed into, uh, transposed into God himself. Uh, uh, so, again, I go here, my God, I talk too much, very quickly, to refer to your book again, where you emphasize how the Hegelian reconciliation is not the reconciliation uh, uh, which overcomes the obstacles. Reconciliation means you acknowledge the obstacle as constitutive. You have an obstacle to something, but you get reconciled when you see, realize that this obstacle which prevents you from reaching some higher goal is what creates, what sustains this higher goal. Uh, so for Hegel, we humans reach immortality and infinity not by way of undoing the fall, by way of somehow getting rid of the obstacle of our finite bodily existence, but by way of reconciling ourselves with what appeared to us as the obstacle and accepting that this obstacle plays the positive role of sustaining the space of what it appears as an obstacle to. Even, now, a comical, very brief comical interlude, even from your love life, are you aware that if your partner, how do you fall in love? I claim it's what makes you, a person can be, to your standards, beautiful, attractive, but for love you always have to have some imperfection. And then you say to yourself, in spite of this imperfection, I love him, her, it, and so on. But this in spite of is deceiving here. This in spite of really means a positive condition of it. So again, the basis of Hegel is that obstacles create what they are an obstacle to. And to illustrate this point, Hegel evokes a wonderful example from the sphere of education. He notices how small children prefer to draw Im images in color, while later they prefer to do them in gray, with a colorless pencil. Now, humanist theorists of education see this as the oppressive result of educational violence. Children's creativity is thwarted, they are forced to express themselves within the strangeity of colorlessness and so on. Hegel's reading is exactly the opposite one. It is this reduction to colorless space that, by way of reducing the sensuous wealth, 
enables the children to articulate the higher spiritual dimension. This is why when our medium gets enhanced by more realist, for example, reading of reality, something is always lost. This is why when color movies were introduced, or even already with sound, many high artists were in a panic. They saw that color movies do not mean simply we see more. It, we lose something. The spiritual wealth is lost. This brings me now, I will try to complicate things a little bit more, to the topic of the Freudian unconscious. The, the unconscious for Freud is not some deeper irrational dimension, uh, but it's what Lacan would have called a virtual another scene which accompanies my conscious content. Let me take an example of a joke that I use all the time in the last decade, probably I used it here the last time. Uh, now I am the, the, the stupid hen or whatever, <laughs> not just stupid. Uh, you know, I always uh, the, the, uh, the famous jokes from Lubitsch, Ernst Lubitsch, Ninotska, you know, when a guy in a cafeteria says, waiter, uh, bring me a cup of coffee without cream, please. And the waiter replies, I'm sorry, sir, we have no cream, only milk, so I can only bring you a coffee without milk. <laughs> That's what Hegel means with determinate negation. Although material is the same coffee, but coffee without milk is not the same as coffee without cream. In our symbolic universe, of course. And things get here so complex. My good friend, uh, not as good as you, still good friend, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, D-U-P-U-Y, who teaches in Paris, but also at Stanford, the best theorist theories of catastrophes that I know, locates at this dimension the possibility to change the past. He's not a science fiction magician. Of course, something happens. We cannot trade it. But what we are doing also, I drank a coffee. We cannot change this. It happened in the past. But what I can do retroactively is to change the fact that I drank coffee without cream into a fact that I changed coffee without milk. I mean, uh, this, let's call it absential or virtual dimension of the past that we can change. And my point is that far from being some deep, substantial, instinctual irrationality, the Freudian unconscious moves strictly at this level. Unconscious is like the other of unconscious is this potential negative virtuality. It's, uh, let's say, drinking your stupid coffee without milk is your consciousness, and unconsciousness decides, are you drinking coffee without milk or coffee, uh, or coffee without uh, cream? Now, the very naive question that I that has to be raised here is, and maybe you can help me, this is not, I'm not boasting, patronizing you, this is not a rhetorical question, it's a very naive question. Uh, can the computer, even if you imagine this perfect singularity which reads your mind, and let's say it reads your mind, I want a cup of coffee. 
can it disturb this virtual negative dimension accompanying it? Did you mean coffee without milk or coffee without uh, or coffee without cream? There are signs, my computer specialist friends who know more than me, that know this is still an obstacle. This virtual negative dimension uh, uh, remains outside. And so this brings me to the uh, to the conclusion. I, th I think it's against this background that we should approach the question, will the eventual rise of singularity be an apocalypse? Uh, already decades ago, Ginter Anders, if you are interested, the first husband of uh, Hannah Arendt, wrote after World War One, uh, Two, an, uh, an interesting uh, seminal essay, Apocalypse Without Kingdom, where he says, usually really, we imagine apocalypse even if it's a catastrophe, as apocalypse with kingdom. It's a catastrophe, but through this catastrophe, at the end, some higher level kingdom emerges. And for Ginter Anders, he was, of course, reacting to the prospect of nuclear catastrophe. The problem is that that catastrophe would have been precisely an apocalypse without kingdom. There is no higher insight only. Maybe, okay, if you are some crazy religious fundamentalist and you think it doesn't matter what happens, we will all be dead, but we will be risen in God and so on and so on. If you don't accept this, the apocalypse is simply absolute. Uh, now, the question is, since clearly our immersion into a singularity, floating in a collective brain, uh, uh, happens, what type of apocalypse will it be? Will it be the way the partisans of singularity paint it with uh, apocalypse with kingdom we will become divine, floating in a divine collective mind, and so on and so on. But not to lose time, uh, you give me another five, ten minutes, just perhaps. I like to complicate things here. You know, even with intelligent theologists, this idea of floating in paradise, it gets complicated. I'm now repeating a joke of, I forgot which one, one of my last books. For example, you learn so much from intelligent theologists. Thomas Aquinas, uh, in his Summa Theologica, uh, approaches this very simple problem. In paradise, we were supposed to become a little bit godlike in the sense of a perfect, uh, almost complete knowledge. So, will we be able or not in paradise to observe the suffering of those in hell? And his solution is yes, because not being able to do it would have meant that our knowledge is curtailed, limited, and so on and so on. But he, he was not an idiot, Thomas Aquinas, he immediately sees the problem, which is, since what we will be doing in paradise will 
bring us constant pleasure, isn't it sadistic, ominous? How can we, could we find immense pleasure in observing terrible suffering of others in hell? His answer is a typical sophistic theological <coughs> tricky one, is to distinguish two types of pleasure. We will not find pleasure directly in seeing the suffering. We will find pleasure and aid in the greatness of divine justice. My God, you see how God did punish and so on and so on. But even this one, of course, I think it doesn't work. I think that many really intelligent theologists are aware of it, that things are much darker here. In the sense, not in the sense that we are simply sadists there and so on, but what if living in paradise is boring? What is the only thing, place where, in our imagination, things really happen is hell? So the scene I like to imagine, it's my crazy idea, is that you get bored in hell and then once a week they tell, okay, are you bored here? Let me just give you an idea and it will renew your will to be here. What is happening down there? So for 20 minutes you are allowed to see the suffering down there and then the angel organizing this tells you, now you see it's nonetheless better here. <laughs> but then I go to the end and tell myself, look at it from the standpoint of hell. It's permanent fire, which means you are there, you are there uh, roasting uh, fresh meat, you are dancing, getting drunk and so on. And then there is agent like once a week tell you, guys, this only works if we, print, if we cover it up, that we don't have such a nice life. <laughs> I love Next half an hour, we are observed. Please play that we are suffering. <laughs> or, and then this guy's uh, advocate says, okay, it's over, back to, back to the party, and so on, and so on. Now, you will think and crazy. I will not quote it to you now. There are the orologists who went as far as this. But, uh, uh, so, uh, now I will give you another example of this dimension which escapes, eludes divinity if you read the notion of divinity in a too flat dimension, as you have put it, outside contradiction, this eternal belief, complete wisdom, and so on and so on. Uh, a joke, at least here, I didn't use it here, it's not nowhere, so this joke I can tell it to you with clear consciousness. <laughs> uh, uh, a Jewish friend told it to me. You know that the Jews have something, I don't think it will last for a long time, it's so politically incorrect, <laughs> Auschwitz jokes. It's a whole sub-genre. And uh, uh, to understand the joke that I will tell you now, you just have to be aware that uh, uh, of this, uh, how theology dealt with, uh, dealt with, uh, with uh, Auschwitz. You know, the popular motive is God was not there, or God died there. The idea is it's simply too horrible to happen for God to condone it. So there is even 
I think a book written on it with the title God died at Auschwitz or God was not there and so on and so on. Okay, you are not obliged to laugh. It's a very simple joke, but it has a deep insight in it. The joke is that uh, the, uh, there are a couple of Jews in paradise who died at Auschwitz and it's a nice afternoon paradise, a nice stream, meadow, near forest, they sit on a bench and tell them jokes, funny stories about how they died at Auschwitz. And one of them tells the other, you remember Jacob, how you died there? Uh, you were even not touched by gas because when they dragged you towards the gas chamber, you slipped on a, on a piece of soap and you fell and cracked your skull. Oh, it was so funny. And Jacob laughed. Oh, it was so funny. Then God, taking a break from his hard work, comes walking by, looks at them and says, Guys, my God, how can you make fun of this? I don't understand it. You suffered so much, then how can you make fun of it? You know what one of the Jews does? Goes to God, puts a shoulder around his arms and says, Don't worry, my Lord. You, of course you cannot understand it because you were not there. <laughs> and you know, I find it so brilliant yes. It's not the suffering that God cannot understand. It's the joke of it. This dimension is the dimension of uh, without coffee or whatever, that, uh, uh, that, virtual, uh, that virtual dimension. In the end, but I already speak too much, there is another joke which would be possible to include here. To make your point, uh, the last time we met, uh, you were advocating universality. And if you, okay, if you allow me this slight, slight detour, it's the same with and that's my problem with identity politics. When somebody plays the victim, humiliating himself, always ask in Lacanian terms, what is the surplus pleasure, surplus enjoyment? What does he gain by it? Another joke, I already used it, but now I will give a different anti-political correctness twist to it. Probably you know the joke. It's, uh, again, a Jewish joke. Uh, Saturday in a synagogue, they are conversing, uh, uh, the Jewish believers, and first a rich rabbi said, Oh God, I'm nothing. I'm not worth of your attention, and so on and so on. You must know the joke. Then another rich Jewish merchant says, Oh God, I'm also nothing. Uh, I'm not worthy of your attention, blah, blah, blah. And then a poor, ordinary Jew stands up and says, Oh God, but I'm also nothing. And one of the rich Jews kicks the other and says, but who does this guy think that he is, that he can simply say that he is also an artist? <laughs> That's what I literally experienced already over 10 years ago at a round table where all white male people exerted in this exaggerated self humiliation. Everything that happens in the first world is the responsibility of Eurocentrism, of European civilization. We are guilty of everything, blah, blah, blah. And then I learned this story from a, 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 a black friend of mine who is really intelligent. She told me that he raised his hand and said, but wait a minute, we blacks are not so innocent, you know. We also have our own Muslim fundamentalism and so on and so on. We are also guilty. And 
he told me the look of the these big white critics was devastating. Basically, they were reproaching him, but we are the guilty ones. What right do you have to proclaim in this sense that you are also nothing, and so on, and so on? Why? You have to ask yourself, what do white liberals, left liberals, anti-racist, profit from this assuming all the guilt? They, prof they gain their universality. They all the time advocate, no, blacks or other cultures should be allowed their particular identity, blah, 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 but not universality. I always noticed in this how they, precisely by proclaiming themselves nothing, they reserve for, for themselves this position of judges of what is politically correct and so on and so on and so on. So no, the true end of racism for me is not we are all allowed our particular identity. No. The, the true end of racism is when blacks and others are allowed to formulate their own universality, to participate in their own way in our uh, universality. So, sorry, for this detour, back to my main lines. Uh, what then does all this have to do with singularity? What will it be? It will not be this free floating in some collective space. It will uh, also not be, I think, that we will become simply inhuman, just uh, uh, cogs in the global machine of a global mind, simply losing our individuality and so on and so on. Here, I think, many partisans of singularity Read, I really think he's bad, as a theorist, the big popularizer of singularity, Ray Kurzweil. Read him. He, you know, he describes his wonderful <coughs> state, shared experiences, and so on and so on. But the way he talks is as if we somehow remain the same individuals, talking, reasoning, and so on. It remains there. So what will happen? Uh, I think neither a collective bliss nor hell, but something much more paradoxical. That's why I mentioned this, uh, the joke of without milk and so on and so on. Uh, uh, now that we experience ourselves as subjects, somehow our individuality is automatically assumed to be the same as our inner life, self-experience, and so on and so on. Here, I think, the way, if it will happen, singularity, having a collective mind experiences will happen, is that we, individuals participating in it, will emerge as pure Cartesian subject, empty point. We will be deprived of all our positive contact. Yes, all my experiences can be shared and so on and so on, all my conscious experiences, but uh, I, as pure I, this pure point of self-reference, I will not be that. We will experience, I claim, singularity as a radical cut, radical division. Even our experiences, subjective experiences, will be, ta will be taken from us. But 
I claim, and here comes the complication, what will not be taken from us, because of the reasons I already indicated, is our unconscious, this purely virtual negative dimension. So, this will be a nice paradox, where precisely our unconscious will escape this collective machine of singularity, uh, and so on, and so on. So, again, will the universe of meaning still be there when we will, if we will, dwell in singularity? Or will we enter simply a meaningless automatic universe? I think it will be there, but as upset. The loss will remain, precisely because we will survive as, as empty subjects. So, the division will not, no longer be the division between subject and object. I am alienated from the social totality. It will be a radical cut in my own self-experience. I am not what I am, my inner life, and so on and so on. And here I come to the stupid hand and his thought from his new book, where he says, referring to Hegel, the point of political contestation is to move in the direction of an increasingly resistant contradiction. And philosophy plays a vital role in this movement. This is Hegel's definition of progress. The movement from more easily resolved social contradictions to more intractable ones. And that's again my final thought for, for, for what will happen if this will happen technologically singularity. It will not be, no longer be this simple contradiction, I and you, what do I know, what is in your mind, and so on, or me and impenetrable society. The, the contradiction, in the sense of radical inconsistency gap, will be brought into the very heart of my identity. So, maybe there is a new hope in it, but as many intelligent critics of singularity have proven, it can also mean an incredible new forms of pain. Are we aware, I'm sure, some secret agencies are already practicing it. For example, you know this idea of getting rid of sexuality in the sense of our fantasies and so on, and doing it directly, just uh, just uh, soliciting our whatever uh, biological basis of orgasm and so on. But are you aware that once you do this, you can apply the same uh, pain? And you can imagine through Neuralink incredible new forms of torture and so on and so on. We are in an extremely dangerous domain, but I don't think that we can step back. We are already in it. So it's an extremely dangerous situation, new, what we were till now speculating. You know, oh, we are divided subjects, not identical with ourselves, and so on. If singularity happens, then it will no longer be just a philosophical speculation or something that you can, uh, that you can discern through deep psychoanalysis. It will be an immediate matter of human experience, this radical self-division. I think 
that's all that we can say today. That under the mask of this unity of singularity, oh, we share experiences and so on and so on, it will be, it will be incredible radical division. Thank you very much. from a critical question from 
the podium, where somebody told him, why did you betray your own culture and move to England and so on and so on, more impressed by England and so on, and he gave a wonderful answer. He said, no, it's not true. The deepest influence in my work of, as a writer are two great English writers, Jane Austen and Charles Dickens. And then he said, if as an Indian person, you read Jane Austen, all this, you know, impoverished rich people, intrigues, how to marry your daughters, he said, this is the lower middle class, middle class in uh, Bombay, or no, how do you say today? Uh, Mumbai. No, Bombay is prohibited. Mumbai. Mumbai, yes. This is in Mumbai today. Then he said, poverty in India, it's Dickens, Oliver Twist, and so on and so on. And this is the moments which are for me truly fascinating. How? I don't think, I never believed in this, you know, to understand Shakespeare, you have to know all the details of Elizabethan England. If anything, I claim the opposite is true. To understand Elizabethan England, you need to read Shakespeare. That's why, for example, an author that I don't like very much, for reasons I will not go into today, uh, Dostoevsky. It's so nice to see go to Pirate Bay. Is it dangerous here? Can you be fine? Or I don't know, but uh, you can get it there. The absolutely best film version of Dostoevsky is, the title is Hakuchi, Hakuichi, I'm not sure. It's uh, Akira Kurosawa Japanese version, which is transposed into Japan after World War II, Mishkin, the idiot of his idiot, doesn't come from Europe, but he comes from the front and so on and so on. That's, that's the, the living universality. Precisely how, it's not, this is what Hegel calls concrete universality. It's not abstract. It's Precisely this total adaptability. You are thankful to Shakespeare more if you, or to Dostoevsky, more if you transpose him in contemporary Japan than to try to search for what did he really mean and so on and so on. Um. Hi, I was just wondering, um, with the possibility of singularity, uh, you know, uh, materializing, do you see it as the as sort of like, uh, as sort of uh, opening up, uh, for example, like the idea of the divided self to falsificationism, and therefore, could you see it as a sort of threat to the whole theory, or is there is it still too abstract, and is there a way to sort of sidestep? So I didn't get precisely the point of your question. I uh, the possibility of literalizing the divided subject. Um, does that open it up to falsification and therefore threaten the theory of Hegelian psychoanalysis, Lacanianism? Yeah. yeah, in some sense, yes. I'm not afraid to say I would accept this challenge because it's very abstract what I said, but I really mean it as a, maybe I will be proven false, as a concrete prediction. I'm talking precisely about how, if our individuality sometimes survives, how it will experience itself. Again, it will be neither this bliss of floating in some communal space, nor simple disappearance of subjectivity. It will be precisely this uh, radical division. And I'm even tempted to say it's totally crazy. If it doesn't happen, then we will know retroactively that Hegel was totally wrong. <laughs>
No, you know, because I think that precisely because here something happens for me as a Hegelian, which I find so paradoxical. Something happened that was in some sense totally unthinkable for Hegel. Hegel was all in this idea of mediation, aufhebung. You don't get rid of the body. You just uh, mediate your body, becomes a You know, uh, this idea of totally immanent transcendence. And here are guys who come, no, fuck your speculation, we can literally do it. Through the means of empirical technology, we can put you into this uh, uh, divine state, and so on and so on. And it's crucial that, uh, it's crucial, again, yes, I'm ready to accept that challenge. Um, so I was just wondering, um, why do you think that these um, these technological advances that promise to bring us closer together, like in the in the age of social media, that sort of promises like more shared ideas and bringing us closer, is actually making us more lonely and miserable and divided? Um, there seems to be sort of a common thread there with the idea of increased separation in the promise of a unity of a singularity. So why do you think there's that reversal there of things that promise to bring us closer together actually? dividing us more? Is it some malevolent agenda of keeping us dissatisfied? Is it a misunderstanding of how human um, consciousness works? Why do you think that is? Uh, no, here I would just to be more precise. I would never characterize what I described as simple loneliness. No, it's precisely, and how should I put it, empty loneliness. At the level of content, we will, for me, the way we usually, maybe I'm wrong, correct? and I'm not patronizing you here, I really mean, maybe I'm wrong. What we understand usually by loneliness is, let's say, I suffer a terrible loss, I'm traumatized, but I don't have anyone to share it with. And this, I'm not just speculating, I remember, I'm old enough to remember it, 20, a quarter of a century ago, the war in ex-Yugoslavia, and all these cases of rape. And I've spoken with some rape victims. And their common motive was if you, as a woman, survived the rape, what kept you, of course, if you survived it, what kept you alive in the sense of sustaining your will to go on was this, to put it in Lacanian jargon, this, uh, how should I put it, uh, readiness or will hope that there will be some big other ideal witness to whom you will report it. And the most horrible disappointments were when this didn't happen. Then suicides took place, not immediately after the rape. For example, you survived, you turn home and you see what happened to you is too shocking, your family ignores you, or even if they pretend to be polite to you, and so on and so on. This is the usual notion of loneliness. Here, it's a mark, what I see, maybe I'm wrong, is the loneliness which, uh, maybe we are, uh, no, it's still different, because I didn't have time to go into it. This is parts that I cut short, but uh, I think, uh, we should strictly distinguish between so-called surveillance society where 
We know we already live in it. It's easy to make fun of the Chinese. You know, did you notice how all the negative ten tendencies that we have today, the ideal target is China. And you know that they already have this there, this, how do they call that? Patriotic ranking or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so each, you get a certain score, number, for example, you lose points if you are a dissident, if you are arrested or whatever. And then consequences are very concrete. Uh, it's now well known that in 2018, about 20 or 30 million of people were not allowed, were on the blacklist, not allowed to buy these fast tickets for flights or fast long distance trains because their patriotic score, whatever, was too low. But okay, don't be too glad to put it on the Chinese. In some more subtle form, we are already doing it. You know what's the problem? In the good old totalitarian days, to have this type of total control was simply too complex, too much. You could, it would have meant, I don't know, one third of the people controlling the other, two thirds, but then who will control? But with today's super strong computers, it, this is a realist option. In China, probably with us, we don't know it also. They are already doing it. You can individualize it. Each person has its file and everything is recorded. Again, the capacity of computers is almost infinite. For example, some, somebody told me that these flat screen TVs now, if you buy them, they have a, a camera in them which, it's not just that they record which program, which channel did you watch, how long, no. They even discern the basic expression on your face, like, did you watch it enthusiastically or in what way? If you buy modern sneakers, they have a chip in them, which performs, informs the company not only how many hours did you use them, but with what intensity did you run and so on. It's, it's so, uh, but still, I claim with singularity something different happens. It's even much worse than 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 floating in a digital space because digital space is for me a strict space of alienation, and I think this is a positive feature. You know, in the digital space, you play games, you wear masks, you present yourself in a certain way. The prospect of singularity is. It really reads your thoughts. You cannot escape. Of course, the, here things get interesting, but I that what if in some sense the masks that you are wearing are more tell are more truthful than what you think you are in the intimacy of yourself. You know, this is the well-known case of how uh, of how uh, uh, masks are not simply here to lie. Often, something that is too traumatic for you to admit it in real life, to act like that, you can actualize it, play with it, if you know it's only a game, and so on. That's why people like, some people, psychoanalysts, because precisely it's a total foreigner. You don't have to play your game there, and so on. Still, for me, the best, uh, the best definition of psychoanalysis, of free associations, is 
the exact opposite of one of the most stupid proverbs, which is, uh, which is when you are throwing out of the bathtub the dirty water, be careful that you do not also throw out the baby. In psychoanalysis, you do exactly that. You throw out the baby, the ego, and you keep the dirty water. <laughs> you know, so again, that's, this will be, I didn't want to go into it, another dramatic aspect that this will be maybe, I neglected it, I admit it, the greatest trauma of singularity, that your thoughts and so on will be out there, but not your unconscious. It's not you. You're, you're, so I think if I were to study you, control you, I would prefer this total external digital control to, to reading your brain. We, we lie all the time in what we think, in the flow of our thoughts and so on and so on. That's my problem also, but maybe he means it in a more complex way. You know Jordan Peterson's big idea that uh, we need consistent big stories to give meaning to our life. Yes, but what kind of stories? The greatest sto one of the greatest storytellers of the 20th century was Adolf Hitler. He did in a model way exactly this. Remember Germany, 1920s. Great confusion and so on. People lacked a consistent story. Economic crisis, what they perceived as moral crisis, social chaos. Hitler, in a play with words that I like, because you heard only in English, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, this wonderful ambiguity of the term plot, which means plot in the sense of what's the plot of that novel, and plot in the sense of Jewish plot. Jewish plot is Hitler's plot. The story he told in a very successful way, he said, it's all the responsibility of the Jews and wonderful story, everything made meaning. This is why <coughs> the stories we are telling ourselves, to ourselves, are an extremely dangerous domain. Uh, because I think that Let's say, like the Nazi criminals, or also in Stalinism and so on, uh, <coughs> Gulag and so on. Uh, the problem there was, of the bureaucrats, executors, a very simple one. You had to do, those in power wanted you to do something horrible, treat people brutally and so on and so on. And like somebody, okay, although I'm not sure with you, I would maybe love to do it. <laughs> somebody, I'm still, maybe, I'm not sure, half a decent guy. And if somebody would want me to take a knife and pick out your eye, I'm not so sure, but maybe I will have a problem. So what you need is a strong ideological story. And Nazis did it in wonderful way. And at a different level, Stalinists. They told you, no, these are your individual prejudices, the true greatness is that for the higher cost of your nation, communism, you are also ready to do horrible things for it. You know, that they present you violating these basic rules of dissidence as your higher, highest ethical achievement. That's the true sacrifice. Himmler said somewhere, Heinrich Himmler, that every idiot 
can do good things for his nation, die for it. A true Nazi hero is the one who is ready to do horrible thing, things for the, for, for the nation. So we are here at the level of stories, at the level of stories, which again, I find extremely suspicious to see just uh, the good side of, of stories. Stories are here to lie. Stories as inner experience, now I didn't lose my train, are here to cover from us what we are doing in the horrible things we are doing in reality. That's why it always intrigued me, this ultimate horror of how most noble religious experiences or spiritual experiences were manipulated in this way. Probably I did already mention the last time I was here this book, like my Bible here is a book written by a guy called Brian Victoria Zen et War. How Zen in Japan, Zen Buddhist community, large majority, used Zen Buddhist theory not only to support but to actively legitimize Japanese militaristic horrors and so on. I will not go into details now, but what I'm saying is that don't trust the inner experience. Inner experience is a lie in some sense. Basically, we lie ourselves. I don't think, I never believe this bullshit, like I look deep into you and I will see some inner truth. That's why I also violently, as I developed in my book on violence, violently disagree with that multiculturalist proverb saying another stupidity must as wisdom, an enemy is someone whose story we were not ready to listen to. Ah, really? So Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to listen to his story. So if we were to... And no, no, there are real enemies and so on. But precisely to see this, you should not be duped, fascinated by the stories they are telling. And that's very sad thing that I recently discovered. How This is my formula. No ethnic cleansing without good poets. I learned this in my own ex-country, ex-Yugoslavia, not only the Serbs in Bosnia, Radovan, and Karadzic, but also in other parts, you know. Always ethnic spirit of cleansing and so on was sustained by some great national poets who, of course, if you tell them, they would deny. They would say, no, 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 we meant it in a much more noble way and so on and so on. So again, I think that this is what we can nonetheless learn from all three Western religions. Uh, uh, this, uh, I mean, monotheistic. Even in Islam, you find this. It's easy today to be. Uh, I am opposed to Islamic fundamentalism, absolutely. But uh, uh, when uh, a friend of mine, Muslim, quoted me, where it says somewhere in Quran, I don't know where, that. Uh, that uh, atheism is your private decision. If you believe in me or not, I cannot order this to you. Just obey the rules. And you have <coughs> the same line I claim, although it may appear not to be the case even in, even in Christianity, even in Judaism. For example, the Judaist iconoclasm, don't paint the image of God. 
it's not simply this mysticism, God is beyond form and so on. No, it's because it doesn't matter what God is. God is here in how you interact with other people. That's for me what Jewish iconoclasm means. I talk too much, I'm sorry. Okay, well, <laughs> stop there. I feel so ridiculous. Please don't watch it by this. They claim now it is in, it will be intellectual duel of the century or crazy. Who am I? The idea is I stand for liberal left against Peterson's conservatism or whatever. Wait a minute. If you ask any of today's great figures of liberal left, Am I really there to represent them? <laughs> they would have turned around in their grave even if they are still alive. It's, uh, it's, uh, there is, I just wonder what will happen because it's such a terrible misunderstanding. I think one of the keys is that, not that I, I of course, deeply against Peterson, but maybe the idea is that we are all, in some sense, both marginalized by the establishment. Although he has a much greater public, uh, uh, public following and so on and so on. It's, it's a very weird thing what happened there. So don't expect anything from me and so on. It's structurally necessary that nothing can happen. <laughs>